Hi, it's Beth. Thanks for being here today. This episode is an interview with Laura May. Laura May shares her story about growing up with a mom who suffered from mental illness and addiction. Laura May was never really parented in a healthy way and grew up feeling insignificant as though she was always in a shadow. If you have a topic that you'd enjoy hearing on the podcast, please let me know. You can find my email and other details in the show notes. If you are enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. And now, Laura May's story. Hello, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have with me Laura May. Laura May and I met online and have talked before. Um, We are both Daughters Without Moms, and we are both women who are finding our way in this space and how we can be of service to other daughters without moms or motherless daughters, or there's so many ways to say um, this badge that we wear. Um, So I think you're really gonna enjoy hearing her story today. She has a lot of information and tips that she's gonna share with us that she's learned along the way. So I'm gonna turn the mic over to her and let her introduce herself, tell us her story, tell us about her mom, and then I will come back at the end um, and ask a few questions. So. Thank you so much for being here today, Laura May. Thank you, Beth. It's It feels like so good to be together today and to be with everyone, whether it's now or in the future, uh, just to hoping that that hearts are touched and that that our our women out there know that they're not on their own, that they have us. So yes, I'm Laura May, and there are a few handles beside my name. I'm a motherless daughter. I've been a motherless daughter for 38 years. I'm an author. I'm a, a clinical social worker of over 20 years clinical experience. I'm an intuitive. I am a motivational speaker, and currently I'm starting out and, and building um a niche for motherless daughters in business. So um, I thought I'd start today by reading from a book that um, that I was uh, published in in 2013. And it's a short story. And it's um, a creative way of introducing my belief system to you. And it's an overarching belief system that has helped me throughout my life. Um, when I was born, I was born into a family where my mom and dad were actually not well. Um, my mom had mental health and addiction issues and my dad, he, as much as he tried, he was always catching up with learning disabilities and, and his own trauma from when he was a kid. So they were there, but the parenting wasn't necessarily the healthiest and, So when I was writing my story, I was called to write the story in 2013, I thought of a creative way of introducing my belief system that's kept me strong through my life. And the story's called Maybe Shame is a Color. And so this is how it begins. The light. All at once, there is nothing and there is everything. I reach for the stillness, stir and stretch in the restful, quiet darkness falling in stillness. Light grows and glows warm in darkness from the inside of it all. It is as if it is. 
And the light whispers, are you ready? You will forget. I will always be you, within you, with you. There is no beginning or end. I will always be. Remember me. You will know me best when you let go and be still. It is then that I will warm you. I will feel like yourself, your higher self, like a mentor, whispering in the dark. Let go and fall into stillness, and I will wash over you with waves of love and truth. You are the light. Flashes of faces. There's a pretty young woman crying, a handsome man holding her in his arms. They have visited many doctors with cold, shiny metal instruments. The results convey that conception is impossible. The woman's reproductive system has only one fallopian tube and just a quarter of an ovary. So they want, they so want and need a child. Both believe deeply in adoption. The man was adopted by beautiful, loving parents. The woman's parents adopted one of her sisters. A lot of paperwork, visits to lawyers, meetings in anticipation. Finally, in early November, 1968, tucked warm in the bassinet, a baby boy. The woman is so very happy, the man so proud. I ask the light, will I be with them? How? Is this possible? They have their child. They've adopted their child. I don't understand. And the light whispers to me, they have their beautiful child. They waited and prayed. He is with them now, but they are meant to have two. And so relaxed, receptive, and full of happiness, they will conceive you. This is your destiny and all of theirs. But know this, on this journey, your light, which is who you really are, will dim with human moments of forgetting. If you choose to enter this life, you will experience love, loss, pain, shame, grief, sorrow, guilt, and courage. You will forget your choice and then you will remember. Your experiences and your choice to be honest about them will teach and serve. They will teach and serve you and all those in your life. You will know me when others support and love you. I work through them. I will be with you and will show myself to you. Sometimes the forgetting will block your ability to feel me. In the darkness, there is a flash of images from life with this family on earth. And then I go into my story and there are flashes of these memories from the lifetime or these flashes of how the lifetime's about to take place so that I make a conscious decision on whether or not I'm gonna come down from the heavens to this earth and experience what I'm about to experience. So I will go back to that story with a couple of other excerpts to give you a, an idea of what I've been through in my life in, around my, before my mom died as well as um, at the time or around the time that she died. So, so uh, that was me reading from the book to give you a sense of that belief system that I believe that I chose to be here and I believe that the light is always with me. Um, my story has <clears throat> many layers and parts and the key themes of them, um, of the story, there are many, but a few are, my mom was not well 
and, you know, due to addiction and mental health. So I never really was parented in a healthy way. And uh, the, the second theme is that I was insignificant. I felt insignificant due to being in the shadow of this mental health issue. I was, I remember begging to be loved and seen, whether it was just screaming quietly within myself or outwardly, I, I always felt like I was begging to be loved. We moved 10 times in 10 years. So by the time I was 10, we had already moved 10 times. So I was always the new kid. And so I literally was asking to be loved every year by new children who loved to have a hoot making fun of the new girl. And the third theme was that I was made to feel responsible for the well being of others from the time that I arrived on the planet. I was not planned. My parents wanted to have a baby, went through all the adoption stuff. And then, boom, a year after my brother had been born, I was in on the planet. I don't think my mom was ready. That's pretty, I mean, I was November 69 and he was November 68. So I wonder if they even wanted me in some ways and uh, they wanted a baby and they had my, my brother. So that's an overarching theme of never really feeling like I was doing enough, saying enough, being enough for my worthiness. And it came, I came by it honestly. Um, because I was always in the shadow of my brother and the shadow of um, all the challenges that were going on. So the mental health and addictions, I thought I would read another excerpt to give you a sense of what it was like as a 10 year old with interacting with my mom. It's called the candy. I'm a pudgy 10 year old little girl with thick, dark hair. It is Friday morning and I walk to the kindergarten boy's house around the corner. He can tell things with his feelings. The adults have asked me to help the blind boy board the bus. I love him and know his truth. He guesses what color I'm wearing based on the temperature of my clothing. Kids are nice to him. I get into my assigned spot beside him on the bus and pick at gum that is stuck to the green plastic seat in front of me. It smells like wet rubber. I am having memory thoughts. I think about Lenny, the most popular girl in my grade six class who tells me on the bus, thanks for the Halloween candy. It's all gone now, so I don't have to be nice to you anymore. And turns away to her friend in a seat beside her laughing. I shrug and look out the muddy window. I demand the tears that are welling up in my throat to stay put. Clenching my teeth to keep from showing my humiliation, I stare at the houses as they pass by and have a flashback to the previous night when I hand all of my goodies over to her after she promised to finally be my friend. I am so happy I skip, skip all the way home from the bus stop. I'm sitting on the bus and I think about when I get home and how I have this self-appointed routine to check all of my mom's hiding places for booze so I can get rid of it. The usual places in the garage, stored beer in the empty dishwasher and red wine behind the snow shovels. I pull all of it out and hide it. I go upstairs to check on her. I enter her room and see her sleeping or passed out or something. The lump in my throat tightens. I go into her burgundy purse and take some change from her wallet so I can buy myself some candy. 
Sometimes she is awake when I get home and wants to go for one of her secret car rides. Mom likes to do this when she has run out of her special candy, codeine 222s. They are sold in 12-pack little brown vials. Her favorite thing to do is to suck the whole vial back and swig it down with red wine. But dry and straight up is fine too. Just needs to get it into her, inside of her. I hate the way her mouth snaps and sticks when the pills make her mouth all dry, like she has cotton stuck on her tongue. She doesn't really want me to tag along. She needs me to help her get the drugs. She has been getting help at the local center, so she won't use, but she just pretends to stop. She is very smart. We have been doing this car ride thing in this town for a long time now, so it is harder to get served at the pharmacies. I wait in the car. Rain hits the windshield, so it is harder for me to see if she is getting served. I have to keep low. She insists so the pharmacy staff can't see me. I know this doesn't work. They all know who I am, <clears throat> but mom thinks it does and will not listen when I tell, I tell her differently. So I wait for the signal. It is a thumbs down and my heart sinks. It is my turn. I have to get ready to be dropped at the next corner and walk around the store. Once inside, I am to ask the pharmacist the same pharmacist for the pills. We follow the routine. I hate this so much, I taste vile. She drops me off and I walk around and into the store. I move to the back and I and ask for a vial of 222s, please. The pharmacist is called over to the wicket. He leans towards me, places his hands on his hips. I watch his lips part. There is spit attached to them. He frowns deeply at me and slowly says, we know your mother was just in here. You need to leave. It is like I am frozen there in front of the cough syrup, unable to move. He does not wait for me to go. He turns his back on me. My throat gets really tight and I feel like I can't breathe. I want my mummy to tell me it's going to be okay. I feel dizzy and sick to my stomach. No. I scream inside my head, don't make a scene. He is already pissed off. Panic grips my throat like a vice grip tightening. I start to shake and vomit rises. When I am sure I am going to be sick, a car passes and shines light into the store, flashing bright on the wicked window in front of me. The light washes over me and I start to calm down. No one has noticed I am still standing there, as if no time has passed at all. I can move freely now out of the store. It is as if the light is picking me up ever so gently, and I am coasting or riding on a carpet of care all the way to the car. I can see this light glowing and perfect, wrapping around everything. Back in the car, mom looks at me all happy like I tell her, and I tell her I couldn't get the pills. She spits as she yells at me facing forward. The light fades as I watch the saliva drip off the steering wheel. Maybe shame is little round bits of chalky poison. She starts the car. She wants her candy and will search every pharmacy until we get her some. So that's a bit of a 
snapshot of what it was like as a 10 year old in my household. And it's interesting because at so many levels, I think about the mental health and the addiction and how bad it was even at age 10. And yet it was another four years um, that I had my mom in my life, my, another four years before she died. And even just reading that now, I, I realize the, um, how, how much time that really is, how much, how, how much that, how many different situations that this little girl, this little Laura May was put in, um, before, um, before she, she died at age 14, when I was 14. So when I was a teenager, um, so I mean, to age 10, we moved around and then my parents did divorce at the end of grade six. Um, well, they separated. And so we moved again and moved up on our own with my mom and she just got more and more ill. Uh, and it was, um, really difficult because the system was set up so that it was expected that I would look after her. She was a teacher. And, uh, and so we were at the same school together. And so the school would ask me where she is, where's your mom? What, where's your mom? How come she's not here? And I have uh, so many more stories around that, but I won't read the whole thing because it's, I think it's too long for the context of our talk today. Uh, but, uh, but I do remember them calling me into the office on this last day that we were, my mom and I were officially living together where I was called down to the office. I said, your mom's not here again. Where is your mom? Uh, we can't seem to reach her as if I would know as if I'm expected to know. And so the parentification didn't just happen from my mom who expected, you know, I had to dump the alcohol and make sure she was okay and going to get her medication and all those things. But it also came from the system. The system parentified me as well and really let me down um, in that way and let my brother down as well in that way. Um, but definitely defaulted back to me. And it makes me think of one of your podcasts with Angela, how she was, you know, talking about how when her mom died that, you know, people just look to someone else to put all the pressures on. It's amazing how that can happen. And as a clinician, I know the importance of boundaries and how I've worked on that my whole life. Um, that if the folks that are listening today hear anything that we talk about, um, that they hear that boundaries are everything <laughs> when it comes to survival, but not just getting by survival kind of survival. I mean, just making sure that your basic needs are being met. Boundaries are part of those, those uh, basic needs, making sure that you are um, learning the word no and realizing it's actually a full sentence. And oh, period, full sentence. <laughs> so, uh, but we, it's amazing how interwoven into so many patterns that I'm hoping we're shifting. I hope that we're changing these patterns and my goal and dream and vision in this world is to help clear my own and therefore be that person that's uh, being the change to, to help others walk beside others as they clear those patterns. They change the ancestral story of martyrdom and perfectionism and shame and all those things. Beth and I, we talked a little bit before this and 
we talked about those themes um, and, and how it's normalized to, uh, to sacrifice yourself. And it's not sustainable and it's not healthy and it, it actually causes suffering intergenerationally. So uh, it's okay to say no and it's okay to figure out what your, va your values are and, and who you are and what you want is all okay. So back to my story, as a teenager, um, my mom was hospitalized in the middle of grade eight. So I was again moving um, out of the town that we had moved to, that I'd been for an, a year and a half, moving back to an old town and having to refit in middle of grade eight. Like I think it was February or something. So it was definitely in the middle of the year and expected to live with my dad who was batching it out, being a bachelor uh, with a girlfriend, um, not expecting my brother and me to all of a sudden be living with him, and my mom being uh, admitted to the psychiatric ward in uh, a local town because of the, uh, because she had been picked up by the police because she was so unwell and, uh, and her mental health had caused her to drink and drive and, and she was looking for pills, she's trying to get pills. So, I mean, she was not well. And, uh, and so she went into the hospital. So in a lot of ways, I wonder if I ever really had a mom in, in a lot of ways. And I think I can walk beside women who maybe their moms have not actually died, but that have in some ways been estranged, um, that just have never been able to be parented in a healthy way. Uh, because I understand that too. And uh, so she was admitted to the hospital. And so when people would ask me, you know, where's your mom? I would, uh, I wasn't, wasn't exactly proud to tell them that she was in the hospital and for what reasons. Uh, and so grade eight grad, you know, all that by myself, I think I went to grad, make friends, but you know, the pockets of memory where getting on the bus and having to ride the bus for two hours to go and see my mom in a psychiatric hospital. I mean, that wasn't all that much fun. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I watch these little sweeties, you know, 14 years old. And I think, what? 13 years old? What? How is that possible? But I know we, we all have our stories and there are many different stories. But still, it still makes me do a double take. And then uh, she, uh, she would get better and be released, but then something would happen and she would go back into the hospital. So I'll read you, I'll read you another excerpt to give you a sense of the last day that we were together. Um, it was the summer and, uh, and she was not in hospital, but she probably should have been, well, she should have been in the hospital. Uh, the last day, it is early morning and I am on the downstairs couch. I am babysitting two small children. I can't hear the kids, so they must not be awake upstairs yet. I pull on my jeans that are jammed into my thighs from trying to get comfortable. I lie back and stare at the brown water stains on the ceiling and see patterns in them. Like when you lie on the grass on a warm summer, summer day, sunny summer day and watch the clouds against the blue sky making shapes of dragons and angels. I am thinking about how I really like that I didn't have to see my mother for a whole night. It feels like a real break. 
I hear my mom's car pull into the driveway. My stomach hurts. I stretch my arms out and over my head as I sit up. Running my tongue over my teeth and gums, it tastes like I was sucking on ashes all night. She comes around back and knocks on the door, hesitating. I open the locks and let her in. Handing me fresh clothes, she starts in at me right away. I missed you last night. You haven't been home. It has been two days. I want you home tonight. All I can hear is blah, blah, blah. I unfocus my eyes and think about how happy I am that I have friends in this town and that they want to hang out. I want nothing to do with my mom. She is the last person I want to be with. I am whining at her, but mom, I have a party tonight. You said I can go to the party. I don't want to be home with you. I want to be with my friends. She is great at whining too. She retorts, but you have not been home. I need you with me. I need you. I need you home. You can see your friends another time. I am better when you are with me. Come to the apartment at noon when you are done and we will discuss this further. I rolled my eyes and stomped my feet. I say, okay, really sarcastically. She smiles at me and turns to leave. I love you, Muppy, she says as she moves through the screen door. I scrunch my nose up and grit my teeth. I murmur under my breath that I love her too. I suddenly scream, ha, ah! as I watch her through the window. I feel so much relief as she backs the car to the driveway and is gone. Later, after babysitting, I am with my friend, Julie. We go to the apartment like mom asked. She's not there. I feel badly that I yelled at her and told her I don't want to be home. My throat feels tight as I stick the note to the wooden door. Call me at Julie's. I start to second guess myself. I wonder if maybe I should be home with her. She needs me. We go to Julie's. Her mom says that there have been no calls. After a while, I go to my grandparents' house to see if mom is there. My aunt picks up. There has, I call my grandparents. Sorry, I call my grandparents' house. There has been a bit of an accident, she says. The ambulance has taken your mom to the hospital. She tried to kill herself again. There is nothing you can do now. It is best you stay there tonight, she says other things, but I really can't hear her. She hangs up. I don't understand. My head is swimming and I am dizzy. I remember that I have to meet my friend, Key. I am walking downtown to meet her. Nothing is making sense. I walk and I walk and I walk. I go into the bank to get money for the party. The ladies are talking and I hear air ambulance, serious, not good. What a shame could hear the sirens from here. I scream at them, that's my mom you're talking about. They look over and realize it's me. The tellers all know who I am as this is my mom's bank and it's a small town. Maybe shame is the smell of money and the dark holes of downcast eyes. I run out of the bank and use the payphone to call the hospital. The phone handle is so heavy, I can barely lift it. I tell them who I am and that I want to come and see her. They say I can't. She's on her way to Toronto by air ambulance. I start to tremble and my feet give way. I lean on the side of the phone booth feeling nauseous. No one comes out of the bank to see if I'm okay. Key shows up with a big smile, ready to party. Numbness cloaks me like a shroud. I tell my friends that I'm okay and that my mom will be fine. They tell me that I might as well enjoy myself and we head out of town to the party. In the camper, I drink a bit and pretend to be drunk. 
I want them to all to like me. I can't let this accident keep me from being popular. That night at 3 a.m., I have one of those awake, awake dreams. She visits me softly drifting away while I lie awake in the stuffy camper. Mom? Mom? I think I can smell her. And then she is gone. I did not say goodbye. I am 14 and I know in the pit of my stomach that this is the last day. I am back with the light and the stillness. In the safety and the truth of the light, I know I am ready. As I hesitate, the light shows me more. I am 14 and I know in the pit of my stomach that this is the last day. So yes, my mom died by self-injury when I was 14. And she didn't die right away. She was airlifted to uh, a hospital in the Toronto, Ontario, Canada area. And then uh, she died in the middle of the night. And I remember the next day receiving a call asking me where I was because I had been partying and being told to come home. And I remember going to my grandparents' house and they were very upset with me and said that I had not been a good kid. And my grandfather said that if I had been around that this would never have happened. And, uh, and then things are foggy, but what I do remember over that weekend was that people would gather and kept talking about how my mom had done this to them. It was all about them and what she had done to them. And I was so confused and yet I understood it. And there were many times before my mom died that I had thought to myself, I just want her to go because I had been trapped in this cycle of lack of significance and then so much significance that it was, she was putting two and two together that I somehow was responsible. So when she died, I thought that it was my fault. And I took the, on the burden of looking after everyone and, but overly like needy from a very needy place that had been nurtured within me for 14 years. And then it was like the deal got cinched and now I had to earn my keep. I had to earn my worthiness. And then I just created relationship after relationship after relationship around what I would do for them. And it, it doesn't turn out so pretty. <laughs> it doesn't turn out so well. When you go about relationships that way, you attract very interesting people. <laughs> And I'm not saying I didn't have beautiful angels along the way, because I absolutely have. And it hasn't been all doom and gloom, but the invite was to tell my story. And I think it's important that I don't sugarcoat it. I really believe that it's important that we come right out and say our experiences so that we can be held and seen and, and uh, nurture, you know, the truth around what we need through it. So just being very honest and vulnerable. So from that age of age 14 to 20, and this is, I'll just be brief in this, this part of it, but 18, 14 to 20, it was all about my boyfriends and whether or not they had moms and whether or not the moms were going to adopt me or something. And so I always clung to that 
wanting to have the perfect little family. And so I would just go out with these people that I didn't necessarily, not every situation, but a lot of the situations where I was very clingy to, with the moms. And uh, by the time I was 20, I was engaged to be married and, uh, and very much allowed myself to be adopted by my, my children's dad's um, parents. And it was lovely. Um, and yet, you know, we, when we put more than what we actually have into things, if that makes sense, if we put way more than is appropriate, um, and balanced, um, there are laws of the universe. And if you put too much out, it's amazing how it can, um, really come crashing down on you later. So, so I was engaged at 20 and then I worked as an educational assistant at a high school and I met a beautiful angel woman named Cheryl and I was 22 and there was something about our connection, but she decided that I was the daughter that she had wanted and she had adopted her, her son and had always wanted a daughter and they never did. And so she said, how would she feel after, you know, connecting with her and spending time, how would you feel Laura may of me being um, your surrogate mom, your spiritually surrogate mom? And what was cool about it was that it was a mutual experience. And I gave her um, friendship and my heart so it could be reciprocal. And we enjoyed it. She could have a daughter and I could have a mom. And yet we could be friends too, without the pressures of the of that relationship. And it really was beautiful. She was in my life until, um, until I was uh, age 45, which is lovely. She walked beside me through a lot of ups and downs. And, uh, but then I also, she, I also lost her too. And, uh, and there's nothing like a woman who's lost her mom to lose anybody. I, I mean, I can't speak for every motherless daughter or daughter without mom out there, but I, I, the wound just digs so much deeper. I think, especially if you let yourself quote unquote, especially with abandonment issues, such as my, my own, allow yourself to love again. Right. So we can love again and romantically, and we can love again in our, in our allowing someone to truly love us, like in that nurturing way. And Cheryl really did. And I, I will be forever grateful to have had that experience, but man, was I mad at her when at 63, she kicked the bucket. Now she's really not gone anywhere though. She's louder now than she ever was. <laughs> But I was still mad because I wanted her in my life. You know, I didn't want her as a spirit. I wanted her like tangible in my life. So it brings up a lot of the wounding. But I realize how strong we can get, you know, just when you think you were strong, there's just something else that can can send you along. So she's been gone. Cheryl, my my mom, Cheryl's been gone since 2014. And and like I said, she's a very strong presence in my life, but uh, those have, have been tough years. I, in uh, 2007, um, I found out my, my kid's dad had decided to start having a relationship with somebody else way before we weren't married anymore. So behind my back, my kids were one in four, inviting her over when I was out, you know, not cool. And uh, Cheryl was there for me during that, and, and I appreciate that. But uh, being a motherless daughter 
as a mom is hard enough, but a motherless daughter is a single mom who has the shame of a small town affair at a high school. I mean, that's really hard. Um, and so Cheryl was there and that's good. Um, but part of my story definitely is, uh, is betrayal by my, by my children's dad. Um, 17 years we were together. We were engaged at 20. I'd known her at him at 16 and he had been my friend and we brought two little boys into the world together. And he promised me that he would never do something like that to me. So for it to happen and for him to blame me as if I had somehow not been a good enough wife, a good enough person, it pulled a lot of my pain up and it pulled a lot of my um, abandonment up. But it was, you know, in a lot of ways, it's good because I got to see it for what it was. And I have worked very hard every day to be the best person I can be so that I can give back to other people. And the more wounds we receive and the more wounds that we choose not to fall from, uh, it just does something for you to be able to be a teacher and a leader in the world. And, you know, I'm proud to say that I, you know, I, I haven't done it all by myself. My kid's dad has been there for half the time. And so we absolutely have shared in the parenting of my boys. However, the mess that I had to clean up and the trauma and the, you know, very difficult time that, that he had uh, his hand in creating, um, uh, which is a fact, uh, has, you know, I feel I was a single mom raising these two little boys by myself in that way and just clean, trying to clean up the trauma and help them not be fully sucked into that. And uh, here we are, you know, how many years later and they're, they're strapping young men. I mean, they're not, nobody's perfect, but 16 and 19 and seem to be uh, thriving and enjoying life. And, and I'm very much uh, in my own life around that. Um, so, so yes, it's uh, when Cheryl died in 2014, um, I pretended it hadn't happened. She lived in Florida and I'm up in Ontario. So I just pretended she hadn't come up to see me for a while. <laughs> I don't know if any of you do that, but it's just like, she's in Florida. <laughs> uh, that's one of my copings. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, but I, I, even just this week and thinking about the podcast coming up, I thought about the importance and my friend Courtney, actually, we did a business retreat this week and she said, you know, I really feel Cheryl wants you to include her in your in your story, your daughter without mom's story. She's your mom too. And you lost her and maybe you need to acknowledge that pain and that grief. So, um, and you know, my mother-in-law too, um, my mother-in-law was my family. She was my husband's mom. And I really bought into the whole idea of, you know, um, family looks after each other. And so to have him decide on a different woman and then for everybody to just forget about me, um, to just replace me with somebody else so easily was devastating at so many levels. And, 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 uh, that was my perception of it. Yes, but it was my perception. So therefore it's my story. And uh, that was really hard. And we've been able to build a bit of a relationship since, but I've never been able to forget how easy it seemed to just set the table. It's like I was standing looking into the dining room of my old house and 
the dinner table being set was just, I've just been replaced by somebody else at the table and, and how strange a feeling and how easily I could have been seduced into the, uh, the, there's a strange pain pleasure to being a victim, you know? And I think that it's an indulgence if we stay there too long. And so there are many times that rage and anger feelings, the, the addictive um, cortisol and dopamine hits that you get from being a victim have definitely tempted me to stay there. And I have gone there, uh, but I would like to believe that now I'm pulling myself as much as possible out of that and, and deciding to, to be a, uh, more than just a survivor, but a thriver and, uh, and, and, and cultivate compassion and cultivate kindness and, and pray every day. Everybody's different and who they talk to, but that light that we were talking about, you know, really allowing that light into my heart every day. It takes Michael Beckwith of Agape Spiritual Center says that it takes strength to be kind. And so I ask the light, you know, may I be, may I have the strength to be kind today, no matter what, no matter how much it feels like someone's wronged me or that life hasn't given me all these things they that it should have. (laughs) Uh, Instead I say, ah, but here I am. This is, this is where I am today. And uh, what if I had the strength to be kind no matter what? and to uh to um transcend that um that pain and the uh the letting down from the humans i remember i remember being at church at the beginning of my separation and and the the pastor said uh the the minister put up his hand he said okay who here has been let down by the humans (laughs) he put his hand up and everybody in the audience like you know, putting their hand up. Yep. Been let down down by the humans. And, uh, you know, God's not going to let you down. Sure. Definitely humans. So where are you putting your, where are you putting your energy? Where are you putting your, your, your trust, your faith, your hope, your relationship, your codependency, uh, God's going to always be there. It's the humans that tend to be a little bit more volatile, (laughs) come and go, you know, whichever way the wind blows, we don't like your hair today, you know, we don't like you today, but God's kind of got this steady thing going on. <laughs> he's, he's willing to show up, even if we can't see him, he's carrying us. So anyway, that's a bit of my humor, but it's true, right? I mean, who hears how the human let him down? Yep. And us included. I mean, I know I'm a human that lets people down. I know it. So if I can accept that within myself, I'm much more likely to be able to move into that place of kindness and compassion, no matter what I think someone has done to me, or I feel ripped off in some way, you know? <sighs> so coming back around to around this time, 2015 in my cl- clinical work and doing my, my work every day and working through the relationships, raising my boy, doing all the things I was doing. I came across this really cool business program that helped me understand the importance of joy and the importance of focusing on the good. Harvest, they call it harvesting the good. And 
long story short, I put a bunch of things together and I moved a few things around and it came down to, oh, what if we had a journal that when we wrote in our journal, we only put the good stuff. And that doesn't mean that you don't process the other stuff, but the journal, if you have just one journal of all your journals that every time you open it up, it's what you're grateful for and what you have and, and how maybe, you know, in my life, you know, uh, this particular person promised me the moon, but wasn't able to follow, follow through. But what did he give me? He gave me these beautiful children. He gave me this beautiful, this beautiful life, these beautiful memories I do have harvesting the good from the experience and, and letting the rest go be, let it be and pull it out. I mean, we go to the strawberry patch to pick our strawberries for our dinner, for our family. We do not pick up the strawberries that have been trampled on the ground and eaten by the ants. We pick up the ones, we pick the ones that are like the plumpest and the prettiest and the yummiest. And we are very careful what we're going to bring home for our strawberry shortcake. We does, doesn't mean we don't appreciate the ant laden trampled ones, but that's not what we're bringing home. That's not what we're spending our, you know, we're putting on our kitchen table for dinner. So it's the same with our, our journal. Our joy journal is where we pick those perfect strawberries and we say, ah, this one, this one, this one. And we, you know, we focus on what's working. We focus on what's healthy. We focus on what we're proud of, what we're for ourselves, what we're proud of. And, and uh, just the simple things like water and trees and birds and sky and laughter and hugs. Those are very simple things that we can document and, and state and put down in our journals. So I came up with a process called power of the joy journal and I, and a motivational speaker that goes, I travel and I speak and I teach the three part process of the power of the joy journal. And I help people remember that even in the face of adversity, even when life sends us all the different kinds of strawberries. We honor them all. And yet we can choose to focus on the things that feel good in a healthy way. And so there's a three-part process and people love it, students and organizations. And I've been to lots more so before, you know, 2020, I was doing a lot more in-person work, but online, I will be invited to be a guest speaker. And I love it because I can take all the things that I've learned and experienced and turn it into something that feels life-giving, you know, through a lot of loss, there can be a lot of celebrating life. And I realized the moments are the most important and the memories, having our memories of our, of our loved ones, it truly is uh, uh, really important. So, um, so yes, so I have a book called power of the joy journal and I love to share it. And that came in 2015 and it, you know, I, I molded over and molded over. It came to three different parts that I teach and there's good reason for it. It helps us to, uh, to focus on, focused on the, on the good. And it helps to raise our frequency or our vibration to the level of what we call joy and, uh, joy proper is a frequency. It's a vibration. So part of what I believe and understand and teach is that we can have 
shame, guilt, anger, resentment as very low frequency vibrations that we focus our attention upon and accept them, but then decide not to stay there and to raise our frequency and our vibration to the level of love and peace and joy. And that that's almost like tuning your dial on a, the old radios, you know, you turn your dial on the radio and you'd get a frequency, which would bring in the music that you had turned your dial to like country and Western or, um, you know, blues. And if you didn't want to hear that anymore, you would just change the frequency or you change the dial. So that's what we're doing with our, with our vibration or experiences is that doesn't mean that we don't appreciate every single kind of music out there, but we have preferences and we learn how to tune our frequency to that energy and that vibration for us to have more fulfillment, more joy, um, to, ex in our, in the business success that I, you know, when I do my one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, it's all about customizing that and helping people, uh, really get what they want, <laughs> not just talk about it, but actually set goals and, and get what they want in their businesses and in their lives. So, so that's, I know that's kind of fast, but it's a snapshot or a more, a little bit more than a snapshot of, uh, of my experience as a motherless daughter. And, and uh, I want to say one more key thing, and that is that I have been able to rekindle my relationship with my mom. Um, for so long, I uh, was scared to even go anywhere near her um, for, as an intuitive or a medium. And through uh, the help of my, my energy healer, uh, Genevieve, and some of the other practices, um, I've been able to uh, tap back into my relationship, understanding that in one theory, uh, when you tap into the relationship, it doesn't mean that the relationship person, personality comes through. So if you invite to have, let's say your mom's an angel in heaven and you invite to have a relationship with the angel in heaven, that if they, if your mom decides, let's say we're talking about mom, if my mom decides that she would like to also be in my life currently, that she doesn't bring all the heavy personality stuff back if she doesn't want to. So I don't have to tap in on some, I actually get to be open to all possibility around a relationship that I wasn't actually capable of having when she was on the planet with me. So that's one way that I, that I support people. I support myself. And uh, now that I've come full circle and I have a relationship with my mom, it's very, <laughs> there are a lot of still pain body stuff with my mom. So I've still dipped my toe in. I haven't quite jumped in full circle with her yet, but I do have a relationship when I utilize automatic writing and talking with her in nature, those kinds of things to connect with her. Um, so that's been that fe I feels like full circle around being able to support other mothers in 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 um, in the work. Um, not every daughter is interested in connecting with their moms in that way, but it is definitely one way um, to to have um, a wonderful experience while you're here on the earth is to be able to connect in some way um, through your grief journey with your mom to this day. So I like to believe that just because we leave our form like this thing, this body doesn't mean we we're gone. It just means we've changed form. And, uh, and there is always a way to, um, 
you know, through the love of whatever your belief system is, whether it's through the love of God or universe, um, that you can tap back in. And it's kind of fun. It, you have to set boundaries, though. Um, not so much with my mom. She's pretty, she's relatively standoffish. But Cheryl, oh, my goodness. <laughs> She'd be telling me how to clean everything. And yeah, uh, so I have to say, okay, you know, I'll let you know. We can talk. <laughs> oh, Again, my humor. But mm-hmm. uh, thank you so much for letting me uh, share a bit of who I am today. Oh, well, I certainly appreciate, um, you know, how you intertwined your excerpts from the, the book that you had. Um I think it's so such um, a freeing thing to be able to look back at our younger selves now and but not not judge ourselves by our actions of, you know, what we did when we were 13 and 14. But one of the things I recently heard that I shared with another woman who shared on the podcast is she carries around a tremendous amount of guilt um, about all the things she should have done, you know, when her mom was here, but her mom also suffered from um, alcoholism and mental illness. And um, I, I heard it somewhere where it said that the person who's passed to the other side is not carrying around any more of those kinds of feelings. Do you think that, you know, if you're in heaven and you're an angel, you're not experiencing any of those kind of thoughts of lack or could have, or should have, or guilt. So why should we continue to carry, you know, that on, ourselves um when it's something from the past and you know the the girl that I was talking she was 13 years old you do the best that you can with the resources that you have at 13 years old and just like you it was a level of self-protection to distance yourself from your mom unfortunately but that's you know that was what you were doing for your own self-protection um so wow you've just done an amazing job of um you know like you said talking about it and identifying things and turning it into something that I loved what you said about the the strange pain pleasure to being a victim. I've never really thought about it that way. Um, but sometimes I also feel like it's comfortable to stay there in that victim mode. So um, just kudos to you for all the work that you have done and that I am sure you still do on a daily basis as um, like you said, when Cheryl passed that, that, you know, brought all those wounds even dug deeper Um, so it's not anything that goes away, but, uh, the fact that you have this light factor in your life is such a blessing. Yes. And I, uh, I forget. And then I remember, and then I forget. And I remember, I think we already know, we know that we said yes. And we know in our hearts, the truth, and then we forget to play the game. (laughs) So (laughs) So it's going back to the light to remember it again. Sometimes when you're just a little sweetie and you don't know what's going on, the light's the only thing that you've got. Um, what I love about it, it's always there, you know, because it's from coming from within us um, or connecting to something through our, our hearts, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hope that's some solace and some a salve in a sense for your listeners as well, that, you know, sometimes the humans just are going to let you down but you have there is life whatever you believe whether you believe in the trees you believe in the moon the sun the stars you believe in the sunshine the light you have something to rest because it's bigger than you you don't know where it comes from maybe but it is bigger than you and it brought you here which means you're meant to be here 
and there's a place you can rest. And cause I know we get tired because it's like, you know, you lose mom and it's like, you never, ever stop looking for her again. That's tiring. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. tiring. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> we need to be able to rest and recharge and look after ourselves. The other thing I really like that you said is about um, putting more, more than we have into things and that imbalance that, you know, occurs after that, when you talked about, you know, the, being engaged at 20 and kind of adopted by his parents, I see once you've said that, I said, oh, I've seen that so often where you just pour yourself so much into something thinking that this is going to be it. This is going to finally be the thing. But I've never thought about it as the imbalance thing, because, you know, there's a thing that you can only you can only give as much love as you have for yourself. And so when you do that outward pour and it creates the imbalance, and then you said, you know, it comes crashing down around you. That's so true because we've given more than we have. Our cup is empty. And quite honestly, our cup probably was never full to start with. And you give it all away and then it just comes crashing down around you. Yes. And you attract people that want to feed off of that overpouring. So as much as, you know, I, I, it's not a judgment about people in particular, but definitely behaviors uh, that, you know, you're just one of those needy people that will give, 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 you're going to attract people who are going to take, take, take. And so until you start doing that for yourself first, you have to do it for yourself first. And it takes, <laughs> took me a long time. And you know, the, the codependent dance that being told you had all the power when you're little, just very difficult to unlearn that. And so it's being uh, uh, patient with yourself and knowing that, okay, I have to treat me like I want to be treated. Like instead of treating other people, wait, stop with, start with your start with yourself, you know, stop and start with yourself. Hold on. Remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting and and a practice. It's never, you're never good at it. You're just sometimes good at it. And then you forget. And then you realize, oh, I have to get back on. I have to get back to it. And then every time you strengthen that muscle just a little bit more. So I do like to finish with a, um, uh, you know, a tip or something that you'd like to share uh, with the audience. But I, everybody who's listening, I will put all of Laura May's um, links in the show notes. So if you're running or walking or in your car, don't worry. Just come back to when you can access the um, show notes wherever you listen to this podcast. And I'll link to your book and to your website because you do offer coaching and you have you have an Instagram and a Facebook and we'll make sure that we get all those things in there so that people can know uh, where to find you. Um, Thank you. Sure, sure. And so is there a final thought you want to share with everyone as we wrap up? Well, to sum up, I would say for everyone listening, for all of us, that joy and fulfillment through a lifetime of chaos is achievable and that you're important. You're the most important person and you need to paddle your own canoe and look after yourself and that it's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to, to have a story. And it's also okay to decide that you are worthy to have every, anything and everything that you've always wanted in this world. So keep Mm -hmm. going and you're not by yourself. We're here. And whether we're just here energetically, um, you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. So good. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.